This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Good morning, everyone. If you've uh, got your homework prepared, you can turn it in to Curtis. He'll be grading it. <laughs> it's uh, just stored in that black. <laughs> uh, when, uh, when Drew said, how would you like to teach uh, the class, what did Christ accomplish? I thought, you're joking, right? How could you possibly hand me such a wonderful uh, topic? That's uh, very, very exciting to be able to talk about that. Um, gosh, the work of Christ. Where would we be without it? So uh, all these things leading up to this incredible mercy and gift that is the God of the universe condescending to come and walk as one of us Amen. that we might be saved and reconciled to him. Uh, incredible. So for our for us to be able to focus on the person and work of Christ, uh, there's just, it's just an unspeakable privilege. So how exciting that we get to get together this morning and do that very thing. Uh, let me pray for our time real quick, and then we will, we will dive into it. Lord God, thank you for your mercy and kindness in giving us this day. Uh, thank you that we have freedom and the ability to come together uh, for these brief moments and to consider something, someone, absolutely amazing. Uh, you have revealed yourself to us and you continue to reveal yourself to us that you might be glorified and that we might be built up. So what a gift it is this morning. We pray, Lord, by your spirit, that you would come, that you would uh, build us up in our faith as we consider Christ, that you would um, make clear all that you want us to know about uh, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior. Uh, do these things, Lord, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it is our big question for the class today. What did Christ accomplish? Uh, what your book walked through in that is, is kind of a historical uh, consideration that, that uh, of, oftentimes as we answer that question, we, we talk about the offices of Christ and the stages of his redemptive work. And so we'll, we'll hit on that. Um, and in the end, what I hope that we will do is that we will keep the main thing the main thing, uh, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes all of the difference for us. Uh, without the gospel, uh, there is no hope. With the gospel, there's nothing but hope. So uh, that is uh, our wonderful thing to, uh, to do today, is to, to keep that as our, as our main focus. I do want to just briefly talk about um, the, uh, the offices that, that Jesus fulfilled. I think we'll spend more of our time 
uh, talking about the actual kind of stages of his redemptive work. But I did want to, uh, to just kind of piggyback on last week a little bit as you all considered who Jesus is uh, and now fill in more of the details about, about what he did uh, in his work and in the offices that, that he held. So we always would hold that Jesus held the offices of prophet, priest, and king, and those things are very, very important to us. So uh, the prophets in Old Testament times always were, were those people that, that uh, proclaimed God's word. So God would, would come to a prophet that he had anointed for the task, and he would say, say thus to, uh, to the people. And the, the Old Testament prophets would say, go out to the people or to the king or whomever and say, thus saith the Lord, uh, he had told me to tell you this. So uh, what we get in Jesus is we get the continuation of that prophetic ministry. We get him as the as the prophet par excellence, uh, because he not only is passing along secondhand, uh, this is what I heard from the Lord, and you know, prophets in, in, uh, in the Old Testament times oftentimes were, were uh, disregarded by the, the people that, that they, they uh, uh, spoke to, and, and, and what what the test for the Old Testament prophet always was, was, well, well, we'll find out if what he says is true if it actually comes to pass. What Jesus does is he comes and not only says, hey, the Lord said to me to tell you this. What Jesus does is to say, I tell you this, because he, in fact, is God. So uh, amazing for us to have recorded some of the things that Jesus actually said. Uh, now, I'm not advocating kind of the Bible that has like the red letter version of, you know, go through and, and, and see in, in red lettering what, what Jesus actually said, and that's the important stuff. I'm, I'm not saying that at all, uh, because all of Scripture is passed along through human uh, uh, element in order to pass along to us the very words of God led by the Holy Spirit. But uh, there is something particularly amazing to consider that God himself spoke to people. No intermediary, no nothing. Uh, Jesus himself said, my words... I say to you, uh, and he still does that now by his spirit to us. So incredible to, uh, to think of, of Jesus in his prophetic role. Um, we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about his priestly role here in a little bit in, in kind of the stages of his redemptive work. Uh, so let me skip across to his kingly role. Um, we, we have a king, <laughs> and that's such a good thing. Uh, it, it's so good to have one that we would say, there is, in fact, someone that we ultimately answer to and bow down before. It is good to have an authority over us. 
The worst possible thing that I can think about is to think that it, the buck stops with me. I don't want the buck to stop with me. I want to instead have an authority to which uh, I and everything else ultimately answer to. We do have that king. We do have that creator and commander of all of the universe. We have a king. And because Jesus came and established um, himself in this role and showed to us what he's like, we have a king who's not a cruel despot. We have a king who's not this merciless tyrant. We have a king who is Jesus. He showed us what the king of the universe is like. So when he came and he, uh, he demonstrated his leadership, he demonstrated his command and control of things, he demonstrated what his character is like. What a, what a wonderful comfort for us to know that this ultimate authority to whom we answer, this is what he's like. He's like Jesus because he is Jesus. Uh, how comforting for us to have that knowledge. And then uh, the third of his, of his offices is that of the priest. So if the prophet would speak the uh, words of God to the people, the priest would stand as an intermediary or a representative of God to the people. So the people would have someone to go to uh, who had access to God in a particular kind of way. The Old Testament priest would have been able to have access to the most holy place of the temple. Um, you and I would not have had opportunity to go behind that curtain uh, to enter into that place that was considered the most holy place of the temple where God, in fact, resided. Uh, the priest was able to do that. Uh, so the people would be able to go and say, uh, I dare not walk before the Holy One of Israel because if I encounter the Holy One of Israel, given that I am kind of a mess, uh, I'll be destroyed. I can't enter into the presence of the Holy. Well, the priest was able to do that. So how nice for the people to be able to have someone who would say, come to me, tell me what's going on, let me hear from you, uh, let me remind you and encourage you again in the things of the Lord and, and uh, admonish you and exhort you and, and pass along the commands of God and so forth. And you know what? Um, I will go behind the curtain and I will represent you uh, to God himself. So uh, the priest would be that one who would act as a representative for the people so that we, in fact, could be reconciled to God in a way. Uh, the priest would go and, and, uh, and, and be able to offer a sacrifice that, that took care of or covered uh, the sins of the people so that God would say, uh, it's okay between me and you. Uh, the priest was able to do that. 
What is wonderful about Jesus and his role uh, as priest is that he does this in a way that no mere human priest ever could do. Uh, the book of Hebrews is wonderful, high Christology. Uh, go and, and read that biblical book over and over and over again uh, to learn more about, about uh, just how much greater Jesus is than, than anything that, or anyone who came before. Uh, but, but it particularly gives a wonderful explanation of why it is that Jesus is far superior to any human priest. Uh, any human priest that came before uh, would have offered the blood of bulls and goats and so forth uh, as a temporary covering for the sins of the people. But you know what? Then he'd have to turn around and just do it again. And so there was always, always, always this need for more and more sacrifices. Because any of the sacrifices that came before weren't eternal. They didn't work for all time, uh, forever and ever and ever. Uh, they would have to be repeated. Jesus' sacrifice is one that says, it is completely taken care of. When he was on the cross, in some of his final words, where he said, it is finished, that's what he's referring to. I have done, said Jesus, everything necessary, all of the sacrificing that ever needs to be done, I have done it all perfectly so that it never has to be done again. I have done all the work necessary to reconcile you to God, to deal with your sin, and to make it possible for you to be in communion with the Holy One. Jesus has done all of that in his priestly role like no human priest ever could have done before. And so, there is no need for us to continue to do things, to try to uh, offer up new sacrifices, uh, to do these kinds of things, to try to enter into good standing with the Lord. What we do is we rest in the perfect and finished work of Christ. Uh, one of the great uh, battles that occurred during the Reformation had to do with this very question. So what, what really actually happens in the mass of a Catholic service? Well, um, what their understanding is, is that uh, Jesus is sacrificed once again. And the reformers said, that's just not what Jesus said, and that's not what the early church thought. Uh, you have changed the understanding of this perfect work of Christ. And what he did was completely um, satisfactory to, to the Father. What he did was uh, eternally uh, efficacious. There's no need ever, 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 ever to offer any more sacrifice. Amen. Everything that is necessary for you has been done already for, uh, for you by Christ. And so what Jesus says to us now is, 
in my priestly role, uh, what you need to know is um, I am standing as an intermediary between you and the Father, and what I say to you is that it is good between the two of you because of what I've done. Uh, all you need to do is believe it. Just receive it. What a gift. <laughs> How amazing uh, that we don't have to strive to try to earn our favor uh, from, from God himself. Uh, Jesus has done that uh, on our behalf. So uh, we will especially look at, uh, in his stages of redemptive work, we will especially look at this kind of priestly role that, that, uh, that Jesus played. Um, and the way that, that uh, the, the author here, I think, uh, very helpfully lays it out is, is uh, in this kind of diagram. If you, if, you look, if you have your book and you look there on page uh, 120, has this nice little diagram that, that sort of lays, lays out Jesus' humiliation and then his exaltation. Uh, and, and all of the stages of it from pre-incarnate glory all the way back to a return to eternal glory. So uh, we'll begin with the left side of the diagram, uh, humiliation. Um, but we will particularly focus our attention on uh, the idea of atonement. So in, uh, in the idea of humiliation, um, or as is sometimes referred to as condescension, uh, what we get is we get the love of the Father expressed in his desire to save a people, and then the incredible love of the Son, uh, courageous love of the Son, to say, I will be the one who goes and... Uh, and humbles himself to walk as one of them, to live the perfect life that they cannot live, and to suffer the perfect death that takes away uh, their sins. Uh, that, that is, uh, that is that's just mind-blowing <laughs> that God himself would do that. Um, and so you get this beautiful, beautiful hymn uh, of Philippians 2 that sings of uh, the great love of Christ in, in doing what, what he did. And, and, and each time you go back and read Philippians 2 and you read that incredible song of praise, uh, you know, just once again reminded, wow, what incredible love of the Father, what incredible love of the Son to have made it possible for me to be reconciled uh, to God. Uh, absolutely incredible. Um, I, I, I think one of the major problems that, that people tend to face in, in truly appreciating how great uh, the work of, of Jesus really is, is that, is that I don't think people have an appropriate um, appreciation for the holiness of God and just what we're really talking about. And, and if you think about uh, the idea of holiness, what we're, what we're saying in that is 
it's just different than anything else that, that we know. It's, it's perfect in a way that we can't possibly understand. It is, it is infinitely good. It is infinitely different and better than anything we look around and see uh, around us. Uh, we can be, we can fall into the trap of, of, of kind of thinking of ourselves as relatively good. I mean, I, I fed the dog this morning and took care of the dog, and I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't blow my horn at people as I drove over here to church. You know, I'm a pretty polite and, and, and easygoing kind of guy. I can think of myself as, I'm a pretty good guy. <laughs> when when we think along those lines, we're, we're vulnerable to fail to appreciate just how good God actually is. And in comparison to me, uh, the, the gulf is, uh, the chasm is, is just something that can't be crossed. So he is uh, infinitely good. So if we and if we kind of think of, uh, of, of holiness and God's goodness as, as infinite, um, that, that leaves us with a pretty significant problem. And that pretty significant problem is that <clears throat> anything that I have ever done that's not holy is infinitely bad. Uh, infinite's kind of a kind of a fun thing to consider sometimes. It's if God is infinitely good, anything ap- apart from that is actually infinitely bad. So, so what am I going to do about that? <laughs> so, uh, the times that I uh, impatiently have yelled at another driver, or or whatever the case may be, uh, uh, you know, acted like a selfish jerk to my wife or whatever. Um, those things are infinitely bad. What am I going to do about that? Well, I want to try to make it up somehow, right? How am I going to make up something that's infinitely bad? This was part of a question that that Anselm wrote about uh, many, many years ago. um, Back in the Back in the good old days, they, they had to title everything in uh, Latin, but basically the title of his book was Why the God-Man? And, the, and the, the point that he was working at for Why the God-Man had to do with this question of, if our sins are infinitely bad, how are we ever going to get them fixed? Well, uh, what he said was the, the only way to get that infinitely fixed is for God to become man. So as Jesus came and lived as both God and man, he set up the possibility for us to, to be reconciled to God because he did a couple of things. He lived the perfect life as a man that we have not done. So he never faced the problem of, oh no, I have to make up an infinitely bad 
um, uh, problem that I've got. So he was, he, he stayed infinitely good. Um, <clears throat> but, but beyond just the fact that he lived as a man, as one of us, and lived a life like ours, he was also God so that he carried with him that infinite goodness. And when he suffered his death and bore the wrath of God, because he was God, he paid the infinite price. You see how that works? So if my sin is infinitely bad, I need some way to be able to pay an infinite price. The only way an infinite price can be paid would be if God does it himself. Because he's the only one who's infinitely holy. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So, uh, my infinite problem has been dealt with. Your infinite problem has been dealt with. Uh, And that is probably, I think, the, the most important aspect of of this kind of stages of redemptive work and especially of of atonement uh, to say um, if if I need to have an infinite chasm crossed, has it been done? And the answer is yes, Jesus has done that because he paid an infinite price on the cross. Uh, So because of that, we are, in fact, reconciled to God. There are lots of elements to atonement and and our being made right with God. Um, One of my favorite books of all time, uh, The Cross of Christ uh, by John Stott, Uh, highly recommend this. Uh, Just a wonderful, wonderful book that goes through and says, here are these things that have been done um, in, in Jesus' work on the cross uh, that are all elements of, of, uh, of our redemption. So highly recommend that. We do have uh, you know, one, one uh, quote from, from John Stott that, that talks about why uh, this idea of atonement is, is maybe the most important or at least the place where we need to start. Stott says this, they, the early Christians, wished to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus, neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign, nor his gift of the Spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. It begins with that, uh, because if we don't have this fixed, Nothing else really makes sense. So we have to start with it. We have to start with the cross and say, has the problem of my estrangement from God been dealt with? And if yes, then there's all these other benefits that we can enjoy as well. If no, none of the rest of it makes sense. Does that make sense? Follow that? All right, so... Uh, so, let's, so let's talk about, um, about some of the aspects of the atonement. Uh, there's, some, there's some biblical words. There's, there's another, uh, you know, kind of very helpful uh, thing there. If you look on page 
115, there's a, there's a little chart that begins on 115 and goes to 116, where it talks about, <clears throat> here are some biblical terms that, that talk about our condition and so forth, and, and these, are the, these are the things that, that Jesus did in his work. So, uh, so language of Old Testament sacrifices, uh, language of personal relationship, uh, righteous anger at our wrongdoing, um, language of the law court, language of the battlefield, all of these things um, have biblical words that, that are associated with it. Uh, things like propitiation. So uh, propitiation is an important word, and uh, it, it's one where, where it talks about, about the truth that if we have committed an infinitely bad offense, uh, then the penalty that we should expect should be infinitely bad. Propitiation means that infinitely bad uh, thing that you rightly face has been dealt with, uh, has been taken away. That, that, that wrath of God that penalty that we deserve has been taken away. Jesus is our propitiation. Uh, sometimes people kind of cringe a little bit at the idea of, of God's wrath and so forth, but I think it, it again goes back to the idea that we don't have a proper appreciation for God's holiness. And, uh, and what we really ought to be thinking is, if God is infinitely holy, um, doesn't an offense against that merit something pretty serious? Uh, if, if my sin deserved nothing more than a slap on the wrist, then maybe God's not infinitely holy. Maybe he's just kind of like us. And he sort of says, well, I understand, you know, I've done that sort of thing too, no big deal. No harm, no foul, we'll be okay. But that's not the God we want, is it? <laughs> we, we don't want a God who, who is less than infinitely holy. We want that king sitting on the throne who's perfect. I don't want the king sitting on the throne who's like me. I don't want me to be the king. I want something better. I want something infinitely better because that's infinitely exciting to think about. One day, 100 years from now, here we'll all be before the throne of this infinitely wonderful, holy God. And we will be saying things like, holy, holy, holy. We, we can't get over how incredible you are. If I were sitting on the throne, you, you'd get kind of tired of throwing accolades at me because you'd run out of them pretty quick. Amen. <laughs> With the Lord God, we will never run out of accolades because he is infinitely holy and good. So, 
wrath uh, in response to rebellion against him uh, is something that's really, really good if I think of God as infinitely holy. Um, another way of thinking about, about uh, the, the atoning work of Christ is, is a redemption. Uh, so, so what we can think about at times is um, sin kind of incurs a debt, uh, put, puts us in debt to another. So when we sin against one another, uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, if you think, think about an illustration of if I, if I stole $5 from you, um, then, then I have sinned against you. I owe you $5. I'm, I'm in debt to you. Um, and so we don't want to be people who live in a state of indebtedness. We'd like to have our, our books be be, be uh, uh, balanced and, and cleaned up and so forth. And so, uh, so one of the, the things that, that uh, one of the terms used for con- how to consider the atoning work of Christ is, is to say any kind of idea of debt that you might have with regard to uh, yourself and the Lord, that has been dealt with. You're not a debtor uh, to him in the sense of you need to do something to pay him back. There's none of that anymore. All of your debt has been dealt with by Jesus. And so anything that we do now in response to that truth is just worship. It's not repaying a debt anymore. It's now just worship. It's now just gratitude for what Jesus has accomplished. So I'm free from thinking, oh, have I done enough to make the Lord pleased? Have I done enough to earn my way back into his good favor? Those questions are, are, are dealt with and they're gone. Now for the rest of my days, I get to think things like, anything that I do in my life that constitutes righteousness and grace and goodness those are all things that are just worship. I'm not earning my, my way back into favor with the Lord. I'm just worshiping Him. So when you, know, you go and you, you do something kind or you, you, uh, you behave in a way that's polite and gracious and good, um, what you can think about is, um, this is an expression of what Romans 12 says where we say we offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our act of spiritual worship. So what we're giving to the Lord now is now worship. It's not earning our way back in. So redemption has been uh, taken care of. Uh, another aspect that the, uh, that the writer uh, points out is, is one of victory. So, um, if you're like me, what you find is um, we, we tend to kind of fall back into s- familiar patterns of sin and so forth, and, and it can get to the point where we think, good grief, am I ever going to grow out of this? Am, am I ever going to become mature enough and and, and uh, righteous enough to where this thing doesn't have mastery over me anymore. 
it's kind of the uh, it's kind of the Romans seven thing where where even the Apostle Paul would say, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things that I want to do? Who's going to save me from this body of death? Ah, and here comes the wonderful answer. Oh, thanks be to God in Christ. (laughs) The answer to who is going to save me from my continual failings is Jesus is. Jesus, in the end, gives us victory over these things. In the end, we will come to a point where we absolutely are not going to be sinning anymore. We're going to go to glory and we're going to be in a place where uh, we will say just the even memory of sin uh, is something so foreign to us now because I can't do it anymore. I can't sin anymore. I've been made perfect. Until that day, uh, our hope is that we just continue to grow a little bit, a little bit by little bit, where we begin to experience some of the joy that is victory over and mastery over sin. But what Jesus has done in his atoning work is he has said, I have guaranteed that you have won this battle in the end. This ends well for you. You are going to be in a place where you see that you have won uh, victory over these things. All right, so uh, those are just a few of the, of the aspects of, of, uh, of the atoning work, and, and uh, the author does go into to more of those. And again, I really want to commend Stott's Cross of Christ, who, who goes through these things in, in more detail, and it's tremendously encouraging to, uh, to think about those things. Um, all right, so that is the important part of, his, of Jesus' humiliation, his condescension, was that he left his glory to come and walk as one of us and to do this work of living that perfect life and suffering that, that atoning and perfect death. But that's not the end of the story. There's more to it, and that's the exaltation part of it. So... Um, Hallelujah, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed, hallelujah. Uh, Easter's coming, you'll hear me say that every time I get up front, uh, during, during the Easter season in particular, because what we get to consider is that um, Christ is exalted. Uh, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns in glory. Uh, This is the Jesus that that is alive and who is with us and who we turn to, uh, which is an exciting thing to think about, that we have a living Savior. Uh, Where would we be if not for the exaltation of Christ? Where would we be without the resurrection? What would have happened to the story of Jesus if it had simply just ended on the cross? And, uh, and the people who witnessed it there, uh, even the disciples and so forth, uh, would, have, would have sit and watched and said, wow, all of, all of our hopes in him kind of called into question now. Um, We don't really understand why this had to happen like this. 
What's the point of all that? Well, the point of all that gets explained as uh, Jesus is resurrected and ascends and, and his Holy Spirit comes to us in light of, the, of that truth and explains why this had to happen. So we understand now that the cross was in fact uh, a perfect work that actually worked. If, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, we would be tempted to think, whoa, death wins. Even this guy who came along who had lots of claims about being from the Father and was doing miraculous stuff and all that, uh, that was great and all, but I guess death wins. Well, with the resurrection, what we get to say is, nope, <laughs> death doesn't win. Life wins. Because death is that thing that comes because of sin and rebellion against God. If the ultimate infinite price has been paid that, dealt, that, that deals with rebellion against God, then death has no, has no hold on us anymore. It has no claim on us anymore. So that when this mortal earthly life ends, what we have to look forward to is more life. <laughs> because Jesus has taken away the power that death has. Our last enemy in the end is a defeated enemy. And we know that because we saw Jesus come to life. We saw all the, through all the witnesses who, who, uh, who, who talked with him and saw him and, and experienced him after he had been crucified and said, how is it that this man who was dead is now living? His resurrection is the stamp of approval. His resurrection is the proof that what he did on the cross did everything necessary. If he had just died, we would still be thinking, our sins deserve death, and, and upon our deaths, it just ends, or something worse. Now what we say is, nope, we saw Jesus live. And if we saw Jesus live, that means we live. What hope we have because of the resurrection. And then he publicly ascended. He went back into heaven and, and, uh, and, and said, I'm going back to the Father, but I'm coming back. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I have things that I'm going to go and do. Like to sit down at the Father, uh, to have his... His, um, um, his offering of sacrifice given to the Father and accepted and approved, um, and to have him be able to take up his rightful position of ruling and reigning. And so now, our living Savior who has made all things right by God is the one who's in charge. How wonderful for our lives! How wonderful for us to say, 
There's one who is absolutely in charge. Even if we look around us in our lives right now and things seem confusing and chaotic and whatever else, uh, there's, there's something going on behind the curtain. Uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible is Revelation um, because that's its message. Its message to these churches in in uh, Asia at the time that were suffering and going through con uh, confusion and, and oppression and questions and weren't quite getting everything right, uh, Jesus comes to them and says, I have a message for you. Um, I have a message of encouragement and admonishment. I'm gonna, I wanna challenge you in what's going on, but here's what I want you to know. There's something going on beyond that which you just see around you. And so Revelation kind of opens the curtain up and allows people to see there are cosmic things going on. Cosmic things where God is waging a cosmic war. And here's how it turns out. We win! We win! That's ours to have. And so... What Revelation teaches us is, as we look around in our lives and, and we have a very small view of what's happening in our lives and so forth, there's something bigger going on out there. And that bigger thing going on out there is that Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is the Lion of Judah who is triumphant, and he wins. And there's a big battle where, in the end, uh, everything that we fear or our our deaths and our sin and our suffering and all that, all of that stuff goes away. And in the end, what we do is we go to the heavenly city to exist with God himself. That is encouraging for our lives today as we face uh, our own sufferings and hardships and trials and diseases and disappointments and everything else. Uh, it's good to know that there's something else going on beyond that which we can see. Uh, so, uh, victory is, is something that is a pretty exciting thing to think about uh, with, with Christ's uh, redeeming work. Uh, so, in the end, what we get is we get uh, Jesus came and walked around and embodied all of the important things throughout all of redemptive history in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, here's how he did it. He humbled himself to come and live as one of us. He did everything necessary for us to be reconciled to God, and he ascended into heaven and he rules and he reigns. That is the work of Christ. That is what he has accomplished, and it means for us that we wake up every day and we get to remind ourselves of that truth. And whatever we face that day, that truth doesn't go away. That truth is there, and that truth makes all the difference. All right? Man, we could go on and on and on. <laughs> but I also want to go in there and I want to sing. So uh, let's wrap it up. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Uh, just a few brief moments to consider the work of the Savior. And, uh, oh, Savior, we worship you and we give you praise. You are worthy of that for all eternity. And we look forward to that day 
where we will see you face to face and we will experience you in your fullness. In the meantime, Lord, give grace. Uh, build up our faith. Encourage us in our faith, Lord, that we may live lives that, uh, that worship you with everything that we do. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash U.